Welcome to the program. Hope you're doing well. What's going on? I have some really good news to start the show. Really good news. I was wrong. That's the really good news. I was wrong. <laughs> uh, so yesterday, I was going over some of the COVID-19 data, and I said that uh, John Prine had passed away from the COVID-19. He has not. He he does he is suffering from complications of COVID-19, but he is still alive. He is just in critical condition, and uh, his condition is stable, though, which is good news. Uh, and so I sincerely apologize for that. I never want to kill people before um, you know, they actually die, and so I'm sorry for that. It was not intentional. I was going over some of the list, and I recalled that he was one that had gotten it, but Joe Diffie was the one who had died from it. Uh, or from complications from COVID-19 or the coronavirus. So I sincerely apologize, but I wanted to correct the record because that's important. So good news. Also good news, all of the podcasts, including the ones with the bad information, are all available at The Pete Callender Show and on your favorite podcasting platform. And so you can go to thepetecallendershow.com uh, and you can uh, see all of the different podcast platforms and sign up for one of them. I appreciate that. Subscribe, become a member, give it a review. Uh, thank you very much for all of that. Uh, also want to thank all of the folks who have uh, personally supported the program through the Patreon account, through the Patreon page. Uh, and that is also, you can find the link there at thepetecallendershow.com. Folks like Chris and Curtis, Daniel and Daniel and Daryl and David and David and David. So thank you all. I appreciate uh, all of the uh, the kindness and the support Um and uh, it's through those types of uh, donations and through uh, the uh, advertisers as well that we're able to do the show and to keep this thing going. Through these times, have you noticed all of the commercials on TV now? They all start the same way. In this difficult time, during these difficult times, I've noticed it. I'm watching a lot more television now than I think I have in probably 15 years I was never a big TV fan. I shouldn't say fan. I mean, I like television. I like TV programs. Uh, I just, when if I have to choose what I would rather spend my time doing when it comes to, you know, media consumption like that, I generally prefer interaction rather than just sitting and, and watching. So, like, I prefer a movie, for example, rather than binge-watching shows. But I... I would prefer above both of those. Generally, I prefer to do the video gaming because I can actually engage and and have influence over the uh, the entertaining content rather than just sitting and watching. Again, not to say I don't watch television. Just during these times of self-isolation, we recognize that we're watching a lot more television. How many people have turned off one of those little... Uh, the alerts that you get, right, from uh, Apple or whoever the AI voices are at these companies, right, that tell you, uh, you have uh, exceeded your your designated screen time for the day, right? How many people have shut those things down by now, if, for folks who aren't aware? You can actually, there are programs you can put on your smart devices that tell you, um, 
you know, you've been on this device now for X amount of hours and you need to turn it off. <laughs> so basically, it's you basically program a, a parental unit <laughs> into your smartphone. Uh, so I'm assuming those things have all gone uh, uh, dormant or inactive in the last week or so. I um, want to also tell you about uh, one of the supporters of the program has been for uh, for a long time on the radio side and now on the podcast side. He was the, one of the first people that reached out to me, actually, when uh, I started the podcast up. His name is Chuck. He is the owner of Mattress Man Stores. All of the folks at Mattress Man, great people, uh, great neighbors. They just do a lot of stuff for local people uh, and always have. It's really he uses his business as a vehicle to help people and uh, we're actually going to hear another example of that later in the program. But uh, mattressmanstores.com, they actually redid their entire website, recognizing that in these times, you know, people are going to be spending a lot more time at home. And when they're not binge watching their television shows or playing video games, uh, then they are going to be um, shopping, right? People are going to be shopping online for stuff. And if you need a new mattress and like you want to look at mattresses, and now you're not allowed to go out. I don't know why they don't consider it to be an essential service. I kind of do because it's, you know, if you need a mattress for sleep in these times, uh, I would think that, you know, this would be an essential business. But Mattress Man stores recognize that uh, people may not want to go out to the showrooms and see uh, the beds and such. And so they have listed all of their inventory that they have in stock. It's all up on their website and you can buy online um, from Mattress Man. So they wanted to reach out and let you know their thoughts are with all of us, and uh, th again, they view us all as part of, I mean, that's why they want to advertise directly to you. Um, this is part of their community, and the weeks ahead, they know, we all know, these are going to be tough, particularly for family-owned businesses like Mattress Man. As social distancing and quarantines increase, the in-store traffic is certain to be impacted. And so as more people are staying, all, uh, staying home, Mattress Man built up their website so you can choose your best mattress from the comfort of your home. Mattress Man has a 120-day comfort guarantee, so that ensures you're going to love the mattress. Uh, and if you don't, they'll exchange it for free for a limited time. After all, sleeping on the right mattress helps you combat stress and anxiety, and that's good for your overall health. So uh, don't let the fear of choosing the wrong mattress be added to that anxiety. You don't have to worry. Go to mattressmanstores.com, click the shop online button, and you can order a mattress right now, and you get free local white glove delivery. This is their five-star delivery service. Uh, they do ship nationwide, but you get the white glove service locally. Use the special discount code, by the way, RESTWELL, R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, RESTWELL, for an additional 20% savings site-wide mattressmanstores.com is the website mattressmanstores.com find um whatever store is nearest you they've got four locations but you can order directly off of their website buy local and sleep better at mattress man so here's another another bit of good news san francisco san francisco was uh on the uh, they were the sort of leader in the shelter in place orders they did this weeks ago, uh, and the reason why they uh, were particularly uh, keen to do so was because San Francisco, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, they have a high population of potentially at-risk uh, people because they are uh, 
their immune systems are compromised because of the prevalence of, I mean, the gay lifestyle is there and you have the, the you know, the HIV and AIDS uh, uh, in the population, in that population. And, and so you ended up with a more susceptible uh, population to COVID-19. And so they were really, really uh, uh, hypervigilant about what steps to take. And so what we are now learning because they were so uh, ahead of the curve on this is what it looks like when, when severe uh, intervention, or I should say, I guess, suppression measures were adopted. So this is out of a, uh, this is a story out of Politico. Oh, and by the way, uh, Patreon members, they if you are a, a a Patreon member, you get access to all of the stuff when I, uh, as I do the show, as I build the show each day, I take all of the links to all of the stories that I've read. Even, if there's a chance it's going to get on the show, I put it onto the prep sheet. So if you ever want to see any of the links that I'm discussing, uh, you can you can do that by being a patron. Anyway, uh, state leaders and doctors cautiously optimistic that the Bay Area's early moves to lock down residents two weeks ago have actually prevented surges of patients from overwhelming the healthcare capacity in that region so far. Now, I see some pros and uh, I don't want to say cons to this, but like I, I recognize there's going to be a potential avenue here for uh, people to say, oh, well, look, it wasn't so bad. Look, San Francisco, they thought there was going to be this amount of cases, and it only turned out to be this littler amount of cases or this fewer amount of cases. Well, yeah, but they implemented pretty severe measures right up front, and so they would argue, and I think probably rightfully so, that those measures had an impact, which is the whole point of, quote, flattening the curve, right? Six, Bay Area counties were the first in the country to adopt aggressive tactics with an enforceable March 16th order requiring residents to stay home. Governor Gavin Newsom quickly followed with a statewide order three days later, restricting the state's 40 million residents from all but essential uh, activities. So after 14 days, two weeks, which why is it, why is this an important uh, period? 14 days is the period, uh, the longest period, I should say, at which it is believed symptoms uh, are are uh, emerging post infection. Okay, so in other words, uh, you're gonna when you start seeing your symptoms, when you start feeling bad, fourteen days before that was when you may have contracted it. So that's and, and that's the outside date, right? So if you feel bad today, go back two weeks. That's probably somewhere in that two-week period is where you got it, probably not uh, not uh, later than two weeks ago. So that's why everybody's looking at, okay, now we got two weeks under our belts in San Francisco, so let's see what the impact has been. Doctors at area hospitals are reporting fewer cases than they expected to see at this point, and officials credit the lockdown with stemming the tide of patients they feared would flood into emergency rooms. Bay Area, uh, the Bay Area rather, is considered to be a bellwether to determine the effects of social distancing since that region's policies were replicated in various states and cities in subsequent days, such as North Carolina and Mecklenburg County got uh, got one of theirs. Buncombe County did one early. Wake County did one early. The Bay Area's primary goal two weeks ago was to slow the growth of serious cases, buying public officials and hospitals enough time to increase the number of hospital beds. 
um, as well as respirators and the staff necessary to handle a coronavirus surge. Now, they are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but um, they have done what everybody has been you know, trying to do, which is to flatten the curve. So that's good news. Um, what else here? This is from the LA Times. Michael Levitt, a Nobel laureate and Stanford biophysicist, began analyzing the number of COVID-19 cases worldwide. He started doing this back in January. Um, and he correctly calculated that China would get through the worst of its coronavirus outbreak long before many health experts had predicted it would. Now he foresees a similar outcome in the United States and the rest of the world. While many epidemiologists are warning of months or even years of massive social disruption and millions of deaths, Levitt says that the data simply doesn't support such a dire scenario, especially in areas where reasonable social distancing measures are in place. He says what we need is to control the panic. We're going to be fine. And uh, so as proof, the LA Times has pr uh, published this story a couple days ago as proof of his ability to predict, um, he said that the number of cases in China would probably end up at about 80,000 with uh, about 3,250 deaths. Okay, that was his prediction. 80,000 and 3,250 dead. The reality, again, we're relying on China for this information, so... <laughs> I don't believe it, but according to what China uh, counted, 80,298 deaths, or sorry, cases, 80,298. So he thought 80,000, China reported 80,298. He predicted 3,250, 3,250 deaths. There were 3,245. So he missed it by five. Again, this is based on web, uh, on the data that China is reporting, and I don't necessarily believe China on any of this stuff. So, but still, Levitt, this is what he predicted, and maybe that was baked into his calculations, you know, the assumption that China would be lying about it, but I don't know. Now, if all of our numbers turn out to be way, 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 way worse, then I think that actually makes a greater case uh, that China is lying and has been. Uh, more, I mean, even more so. We all know China's been lying. I've given details of their lies over the last two weeks, and we're going to do more of them. I'm compiling. I have a whole stack of stories here about China's lies. Anyway, um, the LA Times story, this is, by the way, a piece by Joe Mozingo. And uh, he says, in places that have managed to recover from an initial outbreak, officials must still contend with the fact that the coronavirus may return. China is now fighting to stop new waves of infection coming in from places where the virus is spreading out of control. Other countries are bound to face the same problem. See, yeah, this is the thing that you're not, the information like we're not getting out of China right now is because they kicked all the journalists out, remember? They, they yeah, they, they, they kicked all of the foreign journalists out of their country while they were going through this, because just like in America, where you see these population centers that have gotten it and then it you know, takes off, well, what do you think has been happening in China? All we've been hearing about is Wuhan, the Wuhan province, right? But there are a whole bunch of other city states and provinces and whatever they're called, but they have all these different areas where the people are packed in and they have wet markets too. And um, 
you know, they let, what, 7 million people leave after the Wuhan New Year celebration. So those they, they weren't all foreigners, right? There were a lot of people that left and went to other parts of China. Do you think that those other parts of China are just, what, immune from this? No, of course not. So they're having these types of spreads elsewhere. We're just not hearing about it. We're just not hearing about it. You've probably heard that COVID-19 is far deadlier than the flu. I've heard that. But it could turn out to be more akin to just a severe flu season. Surprisingly, both of those assessments come from the same authority. At the same time, the nation's chief infectious disease specialist, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Fauci? 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 Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, has repeatedly cited more jarring figures in public. For instance, Fauci declared in March uh, 11th congressional testimony that the current coronavirus is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu, which would be about 1%. Okay, so that's, there's a couple of things going on here. And this is like, yeah, I know, like, we're all getting a crash course in infectious diseases right? <laughs> and epidemiology, uh, which, by the way, John Hopkins University is offering a free course through Coursera, I believe, uh, on epidemiology and the spread of infectious diseases. If you're interested, it's like a five week course or something. It's free. So if you have some time and you're just, you know, sitting around <laughs> self-isolating. Um, so this is but this is an interesting thing. So the 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 seasonal flu right? Comes, comes around every year. Everybody's like, oh, did you get your flu shots? Right? Because they're, tr- they try to develop vaccines against the flu every year. And okay, I, full disclosure, I get my flu shot every year. And because I don't have any problem getting a flu shot. I don't, I don't have any problem getting a flu shot and helping to, uh, to basically stop the spread of that. Because if you get enough people in the herd, you get herd immunity. Like that's what that's all about. Enough people, uh, have immunity to it, that it limits the number of people that get sick, thereby limiting the spread. And then, you know, people who do get sick and, and recover, they're now immune from it as well. And that that flu, that strain of flu basically dies away because it doesn't have any more hosts to go to. This virus, uh, according to Fauci, was 10 times um, more lethal than the seasonal flu, and that would put it at about 1%. Because the seasonal flu is, what, point one. His testimony generated news headlines that blared across the internet and TV news, and it remains frequently cited today. But among his learned colleagues in academia, he has provided a more conservative analysis. This is a piece written by Cheryl Atkinson, formerly of uh, CBS News, and now she writes at justthenews.com. Here is what Fauci told... Um, or wrote, I should say, in an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 26th. Quote, the case fatality rate may be considerably less than 1%. This suggests the overall clinical consequences of COVID-19 may ultimately be more akin to those of a severe seasonal influenza or a pandemic influenza, similar to those that were seen uh, in 1957 and in 1968. So a pandemic influenza season where you would have point one, rather than a disease similar to SARS or MERS, 
which have a case fatality rate of you know nine to ten percent, um, or even as high as thirty six percent. A day after that article was published, though, Fauci went back to repeating the higher fatality number in public rather than the considerably less than one percent number. So, which is it? You got the same guy telling different groups of people different numbers. Why? The seemingly different assessments draw attention to the inexact nature of scientific projections and difficulties inherent in quantifying the unknown. They also heighten suggestions from other scientists who say that the most widely publicized death rates are being incorrectly calculated and that early predictions about the coronavirus mortality could turn out to be too high. Right? This, and by the way, when you see stories or hear stories out of San Francisco, for example where their death rate uh, or their case numbers are, are much lower than expected, you know, on the one hand, it could be proof that the measures worked. And on the other hand, it could be proof that the original calculations were, uh, were too dire, were too high, or it could be both. And generally speaking, I would probably come down on option C. Like I would probably say, yeah, it's probably both. The measures obviously helped because, I mean, obviously you... You shut everybody in their apartments and houses for two weeks. They're not going to be mingling and spreading anything for that matter, right? Like, honestly, like you're not spreading anything. So uh, reporters, sorry, reporting accurately on simple but important scientific facts can be fraught with peril in today's charged media environment, Cheryl Ackeson writes. Those who make cataclysmic sounding projections are accused of being alarmist. Those who point out uh, point to the possibility of lesser risks, they get attacked for downplaying or doubting coronavirus. Rarely is the public provided a range of possibilities with clear explanations. This is the thing that... It's like... Uh, this is one of the frustrations that I have in all of this uh, reporting and the coverage. And by the way, we're going to get to the, uh, the media coverage here uh, in a second. The um, It's almost like the economic reporting that's done in modern American media, where everything is framed as like a singular black, white, good news, bad news. It's either or it's, and it's, it, it, I think this is a perfect, another perfect illustration of it, which is there's a range here, right? There are, there are a range of possibilities and we can offer the explanations and we can assess this stuff, but I mean, well, I can. I'm not very confident in my fellow citizens' ability, apparently, because what I'm seeing on social media at the mere suggestion that, like, hey, you know what? We need to get people back to work pretty quickly. We need to have a better plan here. Uh, And that's met with allegations that you're trying to kill millions of old people. And, And, oh, I guess, like, you would be one of the ones that survive, right? But everybody else can die. You hate people. I'm liter- This is literally the reaction I'm seeing from people who are obviously not equipped to handle this discussion. So when you hear somebody say something like that, recognize, okay, you cannot be part of this discussion because you are completely irrational. Because the herd immunity uh, concept is what you're trying to get to. Testing. Get as many people tested as possible. As quickly as possible, because what, like I, I've been saying this now for days. If it turns out that, like, let's say you take the example that State Senator Phil Berger said, let's just send out a thousand tests, 
random tests. Get a thousand random tests and let's find out like what exactly we're dealing with here. Is it prevalent? What if a thousand tests go out and 997 of them come back positive? What does that mean? It means that everybody's already gotten it. They're not dead. They're not hospitalized for it, right? It means they've gotten it. They're immune to it now. Let them go back out to work. They don't, right? They don't need to be uh, still sheltering in place. How many people right now uh, have have uh, sheltered in place or self isolating, quarantined, or staying at home, and don't need to because they already have immunity? They already had it, how, right? How do we, how do we justify that? Well, it'd be better safe than sorry. Okay, at what at what price then? A complete civilizational collapse? A complete economic collapse? Like what's the what's the trade-off? So but you can't you can't have that discussion with a lot of people because uh they're they're using this simply as a vehicle to argue something else. That's usually what's going on. Um Back to Atkinson's piece, she says, a lower than advertised coronavirus fatality rate would not mean concern is misplaced. Since there's no vaccine for coronavirus, experts say it could end up infecting a much larger proportion of the population than the flu typically does. Even if the rate at which COVID-19 kills is not substantially different than the flu, the coronavirus could reach more of the population and therefore kill more people than seasonal flu. Does that make sense? So even if it has the exact same ability to kill the exact same number of people, the fact that there's no uh, vaccine, there's no flu shot for it yet, means it's going to kill more people. Because people that, like me, who I always get the flu shot, um, and I would I would get one for the coronavirus, obviously, I would get one for that. Um, I don't have that ability, so now I would get it. And if I'm immunocompromised or if I'm elderly, uh, then, you know, I I could die from it as well. So all of this makes sense to me. Okay, so the, the way, I think the way that you get here, well, let me do this. Um, let me skip ahead to the end of her, her piece. By the way, this is called uh, Fauci offers more conservative death rate in academic article than in public virus briefings. It's quite a headline, but uh, it's at justthenews.com. And... She quotes uh, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University in California. Bhattacharya hypothesizes that COVID-19 is likely about as lethal as the typical flu, but it's more deadly for older patients and those with chronic health conditions. Quote, we need to know the number of people who have been infected, including those who have recovered, before we can figure out whether this hypothesis is correct. He is part of a group of scientists that are launching a new landmark study this week to answer this question. They plan to begin using a new coronavirus antibody test to sample 5,000 people grocery shopping from geographically representative samples around Santa Clara County. Such studies aim to yield the most accurate fatality rate so far. Even more important, we will learn who has gotten the coronavirus and fought it off but never knew it. These people could then go about their business in the nation because they would have antibodies theoretically protecting them from a re uh, reoccurrence. And they would be of no danger to those who have not had the coronavirus either. Right? This all makes sense to me. This all makes sense. There needs to be a massive campaign of testing, which is 
By the way, this is ramping up. There was another piece of good news I mentioned yesterday. There was a test that was developed that can give us results within uh, 15 minutes. And they're rushing those out to market now as well. Um, now, I don't know if Old Grouches is going to have the uh, uh, the tests there. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point Tim is able to find a way to get some of these things. Because he can find stuff everywhere. Tim is the owner-operator of Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Okay, this is an old-school, traditional military surplus store, but they got a mix of modern and vintage items. So if you're looking for maps of old, you know, campaigns uh, in from various conflicts, uh, he's got those. Pretty cool. He's got all of the camouflage gear. He's got shirts and hats, customized dog tags he can do. He's got all sorts of gear um, and masks he was sell- he, he was go- he was selling out of masks weeks before like everybody realized hey maybe we should be wearing some masks he was go- he was selling out of them so fast okay and uh he was also providing tons of free advice for people that were calling him up and asking him how to be prepared he's that kind of guy he would spend you know hours on the phone with people just uh going over what they needed to do to be prepared for something like this um and I don't know. That's like he helped me when I was asking him a whole bunch of questions. Like he recommended, hey, go out and get a bag of rice, get some beans. And so, yeah, I got I got a bag of rice. And guess what I ate for lunch yesterday? Rice. <laughs> you know. Uh, thank you, Tim. Old Grouches. They're on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across from uh, the anti-aircraft gun. That's literally across the street from them. Oldgrouch.com. That's really where you want to go right now, though. Oldgrouch.com. Check out what he's got on his website. Uh, and if you use the promo code Pete, you can get 10% off. Oldgrouch.com. All right, Dr. Anthony Fauci. A couple of days ago, and I've been watching some of this stuff, uh, some of these press conferences and some of the highlights from the, uh, the news conferences that the president has been doing. And... Uh, I don't understand why people still don't know who Donald Trump is after all these years. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, here is Fauci. Um, he appeared on, well, I'll just do it this way. Hang on. Ed Morrissey at hotair.com. He wrote about this appearance that Fauci made on WMAL, a radio station in the nation's capital. And ever since Fauci emerged as one of the most credible and confidence building messengers during this crisis, Speculation on his relationship with Donald Trump has percolated in the media. Lately, as Trump has begun to talk about prioritizing the economy, speculation has turned to outright provocation, and Fauci has grown tired of it. In an interview with WMAL, the head of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases told the media, stop trying to force a split at a time when we need unity more than ever. Here he was on WMA. That, that is really unfortunate. I, I would wish that that would stop because we have a much bigger problem here uh, than trying to point out differences. They're really fundamentally at the core. When you look at things, there are not differences. The president has listened to what I have said and what the other people on the task force have said. When I've made recommendations, he's taken them. He's never countered or overridden me. The idea of just pitting one against the other is just not helpful. I wish that would stop and we'd look ahead at the challenge we have to pull together to get over this thing. This is one of the most uh, unethical aspects of what I see in these press briefings, uh, where the White House press corps 
apparently feels it's their it's their job to be combative and it's not necessarily sometimes it re, i mean sometimes to do the job of a journalist you, it does require you to be combative but it's not necessary it's not required and i know it it makes everybody feel like oh yeah you totally owned him oh look out you got him oh nailed him to the wall there's always this uh, uh, this sort of like schoolyard pre-fight trash talk element to to <laughs> right, to a lot of this where people are like oh I mean I, and I've I've received some of it myself over the years. People are like oh yeah you really took it to him and it's not necessarily required to do the job. Sometimes it is, but not always. And it seems like. The hatred of the president among a lot of uh, people in the press corps, and you can argue rightfully or wrongfully, whatever, I don't care, but um, their their opinions about him completely dictate how they engage in their job, which is not professional, by the way. That's not a professional way to do it. Um, listen, So here, listen to this. This is another, along the same lines, though, this is another example. This is Brian Stelter, who for the life of me i do not understand how this guy has a job as a media well i do i do because he just parrots whatever jeff zucker wants parroted at cnn and he just like rips on fox news all the time and whatever zucker wants him to say he says i think that's how he keeps his job because he's he's not insightful he offers no actual um novel ideas about media all he does is sit around and like harangue fox news's coverage decisions Okay, fine, but like I do that for CNN, right? <laughs> I do that for CNN. I don't have a weekend show. Like the guy literally does one hour a week on TV. What's up? Like you do one hour. I do five hours a week, and I don't even have a staff to help me. Nobody books my guests or anything. Anyway, um, so Brian Stelter does this reliable sources program, and. The other day, or I guess this was last weekend, uh, this past weekend, he had a couple of people on to talk about um, the the relationships between the media and the president in this time of crisis. And, and you're going to hear two women's voices um, uh, aside from Stelter's. So, well, I mean, or, well, not aside from, but you're going to hear Stelter's voice and then you're going to hear these two other women's voices. So the first you're going to hear is Dr. Esther Chu. She's an emergency physician at Oregon Health and Science University, okay? Then you're going to hear Maggie Haberman, New York Times White House correspondent, okay? These are the two voices you're going to hear after Stelterns. Yeah. Dr. Chu, the media has been looking for fractures between the president and Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx. You know, there's these attempts to look for signs of trouble. Is that irresponsible at this moment in time? Yeah, we really need a unified response to this. And I, I mean, working on the front lines and just speaking for my colleagues around the country, we are in there every day doing everything we can with uh, dwindling resources and equipment. Um, and what we need is really strong, clear leadership and um, and to not feel uh, totally abandoned uh, in our in our effort to take care of people. And so um, we need to figure out who really has a handle on this thing. Um, we, uh, we need to stand behind the science that Dr. Fauci is putting out every day and figure out a way to, um, to rally behind his messages about how to best contain this disease and, um, yeah, and not, not look to, um, to divide the message or to, or to really question the authority that's coming out of our leading scientists. 
But Maggie, what do you think of that, about the idea that we're looking for signs of trouble between Fauci and Trump? I disagree with it, Brian, candidly, and I was right. going to interrupt to of course um, make is. that point. I, I think that we are reporting on what is taking place. I think the idea that anybody in the media wants to get sick and and wants to um, uh, act as if any of this is a game, I think is grossly unfair. Wait, wait, all right. Wait, wait. So hang on a second. Did, did Dr. Chu say anything at all about the media treating this as a game or wanting to get sick? Because that's what... The New York Times White House correspondent Maggie Haberman, that's what she thinks she just heard Dr. Chu say. But Dr. Chu, my ears, didn't pick up any of that. What she was asked was, is it irresponsible? Is it irresponsible for the media to try to pit Fauci against Trump and Trump against Fauci? And by the way, you know why this is, right? We all understand what's going on here. We we, we know why... The media wants to see this fight and try to egg on this fight. Like, ooh, you're going to take that? Oh, you know, I heard what he said about your mama. Like, you know what's going on. Like, they're trying to get Trump to react to the media stories. Because this is what drives people in media, is to get reactions from people. Oh, no, that's not true, Pete. It's to tell the truth. No, it's not. Not necessarily. Tell me that with your blaring, sensationalistic headlines. Is that always just to tell the truth? I mean, I understand there may be a lot of good people in the uh, uh, in the media, in in the industry, and there are uh, that you know try to not sensationalize and overhype and all. But at the end of the day, it's to get a reaction, some reaction, whatever that reaction might be. It may be just as simple as I mean, I'm trying to do it now to make make sure that people who are listening find that this show is entertaining, informative enough where they're going to keep coming back. That's the reaction I'm hoping to induce, trying to inform and entertain, right? Make you feel like you, uh, make you feel appreciative of the content. At, at every level, you are trying to induce something, right? You are in a performance space, whether it's writing, whether it's photography, videography, or radio, it doesn't matter. And so these, these folks who are, are trying to pit Fauci against Trump and Trump against Fauci are doing it either simply for the drama of it, for the clicks or for the views, whatever, um, and that would be, you know, really cynical, you know, or it's because they know Trump will fly off the handle and then he will, uh, uh, you know, fire Fauci, and then it's like, oh my gosh, he fired Fauci. So let, let's chart that out. Like, if you're going to go out and find anonymous sources that are going to plant stories with you and you're going to publish them, what good does that serve? What's the purpose of publishing those stories in the middle of the crisis? I understand waiting until after the crisis and then you could do like a, a, a whole story on what happened and the personalities involved and the fights that were going on. Um, but is there a purpose to be served in, in publishing it in real time? And I offer this up as an example, just as a, as a juxtaposition. How many books have you heard about that are written after campaigns are over, after elections. Most famous example, probably, well, at least to me, the one that I'm most aware of, Game Changer. Or Game Change. Yeah, Game Change, right? This was the one that was written by, what, uh, Heileman and the other guy that got booted off of MSNBC, Mark Halperin. And um, 
game change. They made like an HBO movie out of it and looked at all four of the campaigns. But anyway, like reporters do this all the time. They embed themselves with political campaigns and the promise is that, yeah, I'll turn out a couple of stories for the newspaper that I work for uh, from, from the campaign trail. So I'll turn out some stories there. But, you know, the real reason that they're embedded is that they're working on a book and that they will reserve the juiciest stuff for after the election. So this way voters don't know. We don't all we we have no idea about the backroom deals and the inner workings and the the nasty fights and name calling and all of that. We we don't get any of that information until after the election is over. And those are deals that these journalists cut with the political campaigns. Let me be embedded in the campaign. I won't publish anything about like the really juicy stuff like all of that's going to go in my book and that'll come out after the election. So it's not going to have an impact on your election. And that's the deal they cut all the time, all the time. And so now we're supposed to believe that now in this time of national crisis, you can't abide by anything like that kind of a deal for Fauci and Trump, even if they are on the outs together. Fauci, you just heard him say, he's like, this isn't helpful. You know, we're trying to work through a crisis. This isn't helpful. We'll deal with all of this. Like, this is the other thing, too. Do you think there's not going to be arguments and fights? Do you think there's not going to be this kind of disagreement about what's the best approach to take? Of course, there should be, folks. There should be, right? Why why do you think that everybody in the White House and in the infectious disease area and in uh, yeah, the governor level and the military level, why do you think that everybody at all these different levels would automatically agree on the best course of action to take? There should be disagreement. That's not newsworthy. Seriously, that's like that's it's not newsworthy to hear that they are disagreeing on certain predictions that nobody can possibly know. So here's another uh, example of it. If you were predicting um, that uh, you were going to get your house sold before all of this, right? All indications were at the time. Yeah, not going to be a problem, right? Especially if you're using Rowena Patton and the All-Star Powerhouse team. Not going to be a problem because the market, you know, two months ago, nobody saw any of this really coming. And so now, completely different, uh, completely different scenario, right? And this has impacted everybody. So what Rowena Patton and the All-Star Powerhouse team, what they have been doing, and they've actually been doing... Uh, this since 2007 is uh, these uh, walking tours, a, a video walking tour of homes, uh, because people still are buying and selling homes. You can still do this now. If you're trying to sell your house, you don't want people walking through there, right? Spreading coronavirus everywhere on all the doorknobs and stuff. So have Rowena list the house, and she does uh, what they call these uh, listing storyboards where uh, they tell a story about your house. They have these walking videos. They have drone videos. So you can see all of the house. You can see the views from all of the rooms, out the windows, up the stairs, down the stairs, through the hallways, everything. Go to their website, mountainhomehunt.com. Mountainhomehunt.com. The phone number is 333-4483. That's 333 333- 4483. You may be thinking about postponing buying a home or selling a home in the next few weeks. Either way, Rowena looks forward to guiding you through your next real estate transaction. All right. So why not give them a call? And uh, if you have questions, 
she'll talk with you about the questions and like she's very honest about like what she's looking at and the markets look like and uh you know what's is there a lot of housing stock on the market because this is prime home buying season right the springtime is here they will be happy to talk with you without any pressure okay um but what you get though is sort of peace of mind and knowledge so when you are ready to act when the time is right for you you'll be armed with information. So call Rowena today. Again, her number, 333-4043, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. According to doctors and data-based models, one of the next hot spots or epicenters for the Wuhan coronavirus is uh, in the U.S. is going to be Louisiana. Thank you, Mardi Gras. This news has prompted Amnil Pharmaceutical, a company headquartered in New Jersey, to donate 400,000 pills of hydrochloroquine sulfate. That drug was recently approved by the FDA to treat Wuhan coronavirus patients. Louisiana State University School of Medicine will be launching a number of clinical trials on the use of hydro, uh, sorry, hydroxychloroquine. To treat Wuhan coronavirus, the drug has been uh, used successfully by doctors in a number of states to ease the symptoms of the disease. Um, this is an anti-malaria or anti-malarial drug, I think is what they call them. Um, this is interesting because uh, for a number of reasons. So first, there is a nexus here, of course, with the media, which is uh, that when Trump first came out and mentioned this drug, the immediate reaction from our, you know, betters in the media establishment they were like uh, how dare you offer this you know non-professional medical opinion you're not a doctor and then of course some guys in like africa ran out and bought or stole i don't even remember they they got their hands on like you know mass quantities of this drug and they like gobbled it and overdosed on it and then they were like see donald trump is to blame for their deaths and then then you have of course the the woman and her husband down in uh uh Arizona, who uh, went to the pantry and pulled out some fish tank cleaner because that was the active uh, component or that is the component in this fish tank cleaner. And they took that and they gobbled it up and he died and she went into intensive care. And now she's out of intensive care and she's blaming Trump for it. And like, oh, and then it came out, by the way, Washington Free Beacon reports that, oh, she's a Hillary Clinton donor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she was also the donor to a super PAC that supposedly was all about science. They were like, you know, make, uh, the real facts on science, bringing science to our policies. Like, obviously, it was, a, you know, anti-Trump kind of, uh, you know, we're the party of science arrogance. And so she, this this woman made like all these donations to Hillary and these democratic groups and the sciency you know we're the science party people and then she gobbled up fish tank cleaner and blamed trump for it (laughs) unbelievable laura ingram the talk show host she tweeted about some success at some hospital that where they were using hydroxychloroquine sulfate whatever um and she, she So she tweets out some story that about some hospital that's had some success uh, with hydrochloroquine. And Twitter locks her account. They ban her account. And they say, we're not going to reopen your account because this is how Twitter does their bans. If you post something that violates their community standards or terms of service, they lock your account. And in order to get your account unlocked, you have to delete the offending tweet. Okay, so they told Laura Ingram, you have to delete this tweet. 
Because so what what is that? They censored the story. Twitter censored a story about success of a drug being used at a hospital. Why would you do that? Is it not true? It was true. There was a hospital. They were using this drug and they saw some success with it. Now, does that mean everybody should run out and go try to uh, make this chemical compound themselves and ingest it without doctor's orders? No, of course not. Like, But this is where the media goes. This is where their minds go. It's like, who do you? Th- why do you think Donald Trump should be held responsible for somebody saying uh, for somebody overdosing on fish tank cleaner? This is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Like, okay, so so these people go out and take a drug without the guidance of a doctor, without a prescription. They they are literally ingesting a cleaning agent, and you're saying that. That's because Donald Trump told them to do it and he's got blood on his hands for that? It's amazing. It's amazing. So Twitter forces Laura Ingram to take down the tweet. They censor her. Um, Why? Why? The FDA issued emergency authorization for this drug over the weekend before they censored her. So again, why? Well, I think the answer here is in the sub-headline offered by Politico. Quote, the drugs have been championed by President Donald Trump for treatment despite scant evidence. Despite scant evidence. Is there? Is it really despite scant evidence? I understand that you were always doing clinical trials and the FDA wants more trials for this particular disease and is it effective against this disease? However, there is evidence that this thing does work. It is used to treat an assortment of ailments like malaria, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, for example, lupus, for example. So if there are some similarities in those afflictions with the coronavirus or COVID-19, then don't you think it only makes sense to say, oh, well, let's try this on that. Now, I, under perfect circumstances, COVID-19 was, would have been, you know, around for a while, I guess, so we could have run clinical trials on all of this, but we're kind of on a short time frame. We've got a little bit of a deadline, time crunch going on here, you know? So uh, maybe we just don't do all of the clinical trials that we would normally do if we're trying to save lives and all, if we're trying to see if it can help mitigate some of the symptoms. The FDA issued an emergency use authorization for this drug, um, The agency allowed for the drugs to be, quote, donated to the strategic national stockpile to be distributed and prescribed by doctors to hospitalize teen and adult patients uh, as appropriate when a clinical trial is not available or feasible. All right. Uh, The move was supported by the White House, part of a larger Trump-backed effort to speed the use of anti-malaria drugs as a potential therapy for a virus that has no proven treatment or cure. FDA already has allowed New York State to test administering the medication to seriously ill patients and some hospitals have added it to their treatment protocols. Trump said, quote, let's see how it works. Talking about the New York state effort, he said, let's see how it works. It may, it may not. Career scientists have been skeptical of the effort, noting the lack of data on the drug's efficacy for coronavirus care and worried that it would siphon medication away from patients who need it for other conditions Uh, calling instead for the agency to pursue its usual clinical trials. The FDA's move is expected to facilitate more access to the drugs by allowing more donations. 
which, as I just mentioned, 400,000 pills donated uh, from a New Jersey company down to Louisiana, right? This is what Americans and American companies have been doing, increasing uh, output of needed material and uh, 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 equipment, PPEs, personal protection equipment, the masks and such, as well as pharmaceuticals. Let's see what works, folks. We are in a real-time, rapidly evolving clinical trial. Let's see what works. Even if you hate the president, let's see if it works. I think actually, was it the governor of Michigan has even banned uh, this drug from uh, being sold or something, or or being used to fight COVID nineteen? Like this is this is how insane people are when they view everything through the prism of Donald Trump. Uh, all right, well, if you like the show and the content that I've been doing, please uh, think about subscribing to the podcast and then do it. Thank you. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews. Write a review, positive, again, preferably. And uh, maybe consider becoming a patron of the program. You'll get the coveted I'm a Giver bumper sticker. Plus, you get access to the exclusive content. And we've got merchandise that's coming online, as well as events, if we can ever get out of self-isolation. Links are at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thepetecalendarshow.com. Thank you so much for your support. Really, I do appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 